We'll be reading Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. And as, as I read this, I want you to have the verse that John, you just read for us out of Romans in mind, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So keep that verse front and center. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you loved, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multi surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Seeing this, this text, this is just one of the best pictures of the gospel that you will find in scripture. So God help us as we look to this passage. This summer, Christina planted flowers in our front garden bed. And she planted some sunflowers. And right now the sunflowers are in full bloom. 
And when Christina planted them, she and I, of course, knew the full life cycle that that plant would go through. The seed would give way to the sprout, and then the young plant would begin to grow and finally mature into a full sunflower, and there would be a flower bud, and then that flower bud will bloom, which is happening right now. You can drive by our house so you know where it is for next week and see these sunflowers, these full blooms, and then soon there will be this head full of sunflower seeds. So we, we know that. For our younger two, for Tommy and Claire, this is the first year that they've paid attention to that process and participated. They, they've loved watching these sunflowers grow and they've been impressed by every step. They're gaining new understanding and appreciation for the process as, as it goes on. And, and that's how it is with the slow unfolding of God's plan of redemption. We, standing here today with this, this book, this finished book, the Bible, we have the fully mature fruit of the gospel. We, we see the whole picture, the finished product, the full story. But that fruit started as a small seed and it took generations to grow, to sprout, to grow, to flower, and then finally to bear the fruit that we have today. And, and God's people have looked on as that process played out and they've, they've gained understanding and they've learned what it meant as it happened. So back in Genesis 3, there's the seed of a promise and it's, it's the promise of the seed. The seed, seed promise is given that a child, an offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that, that seed given in Genesis 3 contains all the genetic material for the final fruit of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, which God was going to use to redeem humanity from the curse of sin. So all the genetic material is there in that seed. But a full understanding of the details was, of course, impossible. You can't read Genesis 3 and know exactly what's going to happen in the Gospels. You have to see it as it plays out. So from the time that that seed of the Gospel was planted in Genesis 3, it has slowly begun to sprout and grow as we read. We've, last summer we did Genesis 1 through 11, this year 12 through 25, and we've been watching that seed grow from Cain and Abel and Seth to the story of Noah and the flood, and then now to the life of Abraham. This passage, Genesis 22, this is the climax of Abraham's life. This is the climactic story in Abraham's life. And in a way, you could say that in this story, that little sprout takes a step forward, puts out shoots and a few new leaves. It goes from some sort of indistinct green plant to a more, to more definite characteristics of the fruit tree that it's going to eventually become when Christ comes. And so this morning, what we're going to see is, we're, we're going to look at what did Abraham see when he experienced this event? What did the Israelites in Moses's day see when they looked at this story, and then finally, what do we see when we look 
at the story. So first, what did Abraham see? The chapter begins with God appearing to Abraham, calling out to Abraham and telling Abraham that it's time for Abraham to come and worship him. And this has happened a few times in Abraham's life. For example, in in chapter 12, verse 8, shortly after God calls Abraham, it says that Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. That's worship in the Old Testament. Build an altar, call on the name of the Lord. So what is an altar and, and why do you need an altar to worship a deity? If you're going to come into the presence of a God, why do you need an altar? An altar is a fire pit or a barbecue. The person coming to worship would arrange the stones, set out the stones, and they would create a flat space on top of the altar. And on that flat space, you'd lay out the wood for a fire, and then you would take an animal, place the animal on the wood, slaughter the animal, sprinkle the blood of that animal on the altar, and roast the animal there on the altar. So, okay, that's, that's what an altar is. Why do you need an altar to worship? Because the worshiper is sinful unclean, unfit to enter the presence of the deity. If the worshiper comes into the deity's presence as they are, the God will be displeased with them and consume them. But if they offer an animal without blemish, the blood of the animal washes them clean spiritually. The smoke of the burnt offering goes up to heaven, is smelled by the deity as a a pleasing aroma, and it turns aside the displeasure of the deity. And the fractured relationship is, at least for a time, repaired. The worshiper can enter the deity's presence and have confidence that they will be received and they will be looked upon favorably, and they will receive the deity's help and blessing. And I say the deity because this process was not unique to Abraham and his family. This process of, of building an altar, offering an animal, calling upon the name of a god was true of all the neighboring peoples. And it's still true today among various religious traditions. You'll still find people building altars, offering animals as sacrifice to gods. That still happens today. What's unique about what's happening here is the nature and character, the power and kindness of the true living God who Abraham is worshiping. So what's happening is not unique, but who's being worshiped is what is unique here. So it's not especially surprising or unique for God to tell Abraham that it's time to come and worship him, to make a burnt offering to him. What's shocking, of course, is what or who God commands Abraham to sacrifice. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
That sounds inconceivable to us, and it would have sounded that way to Abraham. What are you saying, God? Isaac was the child of the promise that God had made. Isaac's birth was a miracle, and God had explicitly chosen Isaac over Ishmael and even commanded Abraham to send Ishmael away. And so God had clearly and consistently led Abraham to pin all of his hopes for the fulfillment of the covenant promises on Isaac. Isaac is the one. And now God is telling Abraham to kill Isaac as an offering to God. It is shocking that God would call for a human sacrifice, and it is incongruent with all that God has done up to this point. And we, as the readers, we're given a little narrative uh, insight in verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. So we know as readers that everything that's going to happen here to Abraham is a test, that God does not intend for Abraham to actually go through with sacrificing Isaac. This story will not end with Isaac's death. We know that as the readers, but Abraham doesn't know that. Abraham is in the moment. He, he only knows what God is commanding him. And yet remarkably, Abraham obeys immediately and fully. We've seen this throughout Abraham's life. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and does what God tells him, prepares for this sacrifice, journeys to the mountain. When, when Abraham and Isaac arrive, uh, at the mountain, they go up the mountain. Abraham builds the altar. Abraham lays the wood on the altar, ties up his son Isaac, places his son Isaac on the altar, takes hold of the knife to slaughter his son. There's, in the text, as you're reading, there is no hint of delay or disobedience or indecision or bargaining with God. Abraham does what he is told, when he is told, how he is told. It's remarkable. And twice the text indicates that Abraham believed that God would somehow orchestrate events in such a way that Isaac would survive. Abraham doesn't understand what's happening, but he, he has this faith that it won't end with Isaac's death. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, he brings these servants with him and Isaac, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Isaac and I are going to go worship and Isaac and I are going to come back. I don't know how, but I believe that's what's going to happen because God has told me Isaac is the child of the promise. And then again in verse 8, when in verse 7, Isaac asks, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So even as he's preparing to tie Isaac to the altar, Abraham believes that God will do something to spare Isaac's life. As difficult 
and confusing as this command was for Abraham, Abraham had walked with God long enough. Abraham had seen enough of God's character to know that God was trustworthy and wise and good and that, he would, that Abraham would not be put to shame by obeying his word. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust the Lord with what's going to happen. And then the scene reaches its climax in verse 13. God has commanded Abraham to kill his only son. Abraham spends three days carrying out this command, taking it to the last terrible step, raising the knife to slaughter his son. And at the last possible moment, the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And upon hearing God's command to stop and spare the life of his son, Abraham looks up and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So what, what's happening here? What is God communicating to Abraham in this tense, overwhelming lesson? What is the point of this test? God's telling Abraham, Abraham, decades ago, I called you out of paganism. I called you out of your wandering in the wilderness. I made you mine. I made promises to you, and I called you to follow me. So now let's take stock of how this relationship is going. Let's take stock of how this has unfolded. Let's settle accounts with one another. I, for my part, have perfectly kept up my end of the bargain. I have fulfilled all of my promises, even miraculously granting you a child in your old age and in your wife's old age. I have been utterly trustworthy at every point. You have vacillated between obedience and disobedience. You've risked your wife twice. You've gotten an alternative heir through taking your wife's servant. You've scoffed at my plan. You've clung to the child who was born by your strength and not my work. And so Abraham, it would be right and fitting for me to take this miracle son who is the most precious to you as a penalty for your repeated failures. Your son's life as atonement for your sins. And yet that is not what God does. He spares the life of the boy. He atones for Abraham's sins in another way, providing a ram for the burnt offering. Abraham, I have been gracious to you from the beginning and I will continue to be gracious to you. And Abraham's response makes clear that he understands what's happening here. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We've, we've said that throughout Abraham's story, there's these names given to God. Almighty God, the everlasting God, the God who sees. Now here, he's called the God who provides, Jehovah Jireh. We know that phrase. So God, 
Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. God has taken on the threat of covenant curse back in Genesis 15. And now God has provided a substitute sacrifice to atone for Abraham's sin. So Abraham understands this relationship that I have with God, it is not ultimately based on my obedience, but on his faithfulness. It's not based on my ability to serve, but on God's capacity to give grace. That's what, Moses, that's what Abraham saw here. Now, what did Israel see? Moses wrote this to Israel as they're wandering, as they've been redeemed from Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, about to enter into the promised land that God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12. So what did the Israelites see when they read this passage? They understood the, the greatest significance and symbolism for Israel in Moses' day and after is what was sacrificed and where it was sacrificed. So they would have looked at this, they would have seen what was sacrificed and where. So what was sacrificed? Verse 7, Isaac said to his father, my father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide the lamb. The Israelites would have heard that and they would have remembered the Passover. God provides the Passover lamb. For Abraham, instead of the only son, Isaac, a lamb, a ram for a burnt offering. For Israel, instead of the firstborn in every home, a lamb. For those who reject God, judgment and death. That's what happens to the Egyptians, judgment and death. But for those who are known by God and who follow God in dependent obedience, a substitute will always be provided. The blood of another will always atone for their sin. The Israelites would have seen that. They would have seen the Passover lamb here in Genesis 22 because that's what was sacrificed. So where was it sacrificed? Verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the place where Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac is Mount Moriah. And then you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. You get to the story of Solomon building the temple. And it says, 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Where is the temple located? The same spot where Isaac was offered as, was almost offered as a sacrifice. So later Israelites, after Moses' time in Solomon's time, would have seen the location of the temple as incredibly significant in the story of their people. God's telling them, when you go into the land of promise, there will be a place. First, it's going to be the tent. 
but then it's going to be the temple. There will be a place where you will go to meet with me and to worship. And this worship will always revolve around a sacrifice, an offering to forgive sin. Leviticus 1, Moses wrote to the Israelites, about the burnt, the very beginning of Leviticus, chapter one, the laws for burnt offerings. So you could offer a bull or a lamb or a turtle dove or pigeon based on your financial means. So if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the Israelites would have understood here. This is a sacrifice of atonement. This is an animal that is being slaughtered to forgive the sins of Abraham. And in the same way, we, every time we go to the tabernacle, every time we go to the temple, we bring an animal and we offer up that animal and the priests take that animal and the priests slaughter that animal and sprinkle the blood of that animal and burn that animal and the Lord takes that offering and his, his wrath is turned aside. So the Israelites would have understood their sin deserves death, but God will always provide a place and a means for a substitute on the mount of the Lord the blood of another can be offered to atone for their sin. So what do we see? What do we see now here on this side of the cross that they wouldn't have seen? How does God mean for his new covenant saints to read this passage? We see the love of the father and the heart of trusting obedience. First, we see the love of the father as you read Genesis 22, you can't help but think, that's not fair. Abraham shouldn't have to offer Isaac, his only son, the son of the promise, the son whom he loves. Isaac shouldn't have to die. He's innocent. This is too hard. God is asking too much in Genesis 22. This is not fair. That's the point. Again, God did this to test Abraham. God does not demand or expect his people to offer their children as a sacrifice. So if it's not fair, if it's not God's intention to actually offer, have Abraham offer up Isaac, then what is the purpose? What is God revealing? When we see the climax of God's plan of redemption, 
in the death of Christ. The climax of the whole Bible is the cross. When we see that, we're able to look back at the little climax of Abraham's life and understand that what happens to Abraham the father and Isaac the son is a shadow of what happens to God the father and God the son. Abraham is told that the sacrificial death of his son is required to atone for his sins. God knows that the sacrificial death of his son, his only son, whom he loves, is required to atone for the sins of humanity. Abraham obeys quickly and fully to carry out God's plan. God never wavers in his commitment to carry out his own plan. Isaac carries the wood for the burnt offering up the mountain. Jesus carries the wooden cross up Calvary's hill. Abraham carries the fire and the knife. God carries the fire of his wrath and the sharp knife of his judgment to Calvary. Innocent Isaac calls out to his father asking where the lamb for the offering was. Innocent Jesus calls out to his father knowing that he is the intended lamb for the offering, asking his father for that cup to pass from him knowing that it won't. Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain together. Abraham knowing what was to come, Isaac not knowing but trusting his father. God the Father was present with Christ the Son on the agonizing road to Calvary and both knew exactly what was coming. Isaac willingly lay down on the altar and Abraham willingly took the knife to slaughter his son with the angel of the Lord intervening at the last moment and providing a lamb as a sacrifice. And this is the part that we have to understand. This is the part that has to be seared into our hearts. Christ willingly went to the cross and the father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. No one called out at the last minute to provide God with an alternative. No one stayed the father's hand. What happened to Abraham and Isaac is meant to help us understand what God the Father and God the Son have done. On the mountain of the Lord, God has provided a substitute who has been sacrificed once for all. The righteous Father has given up the innocent Son so that the guilty can be saved. No other sacrifice will ever be offered and no other substitute will ever be accepted. This is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
That's what Genesis 22 is about. We see the heart of the Father, the love of the Father, and we see the heart of trusting obedience. This week, I met with a group of pastors in the area, and one of the pastors, we were talking about preaching and uh, sermon application. And uh, this, this pastor, he said, every week I preach, and then at the end of my sermon, I look up at the congregation, and I say, so what? So what? What does Genesis 22 mean? Abraham knew enough of God's character to trust him, even when God said, even when what God said didn't make sense or felt impossible. And God praises Abraham for his trust and obedience. He says in verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham knew enough about God to trust him. How much more do we know about God than Abraham? How much more full of a picture do we have of God's character and trustworthiness? Johnny just read for us Romans 8.32. I told you, keep this verse for, in the forefront in this passage. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's God. That's what God has done. And if God did that, Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave his son... What do you think he's going to hold back? What do you think he's not going to do for you? The death of Christ is the greatest possible evidence that God is someone worthy of our fear, our trust, our obedience, and our hope. There is no greater thing that God could do to show that he is trustworthy, to show that he is loving, to show that he is someone you should come to. Because of the loving, gracious character of God revealed at the cross, we can hold fast to a few truths. This is, this is where we'll conclude this. First, God will never take someone or something precious from you as a punishment for sin, if you are trusting in Christ. God commanded Abraham to offer his only beloved son as a burnt offering to him. God showed Abraham that it would have been within his rights to demand the sacrifice of Abraham's son to atone for Abraham's repeated covenant unfaithfulness. And then God stopped Abraham and offered a substitute. God did not deal with Abraham as Abraham's sins deserved. Instead, God, God dealt with himself as Abraham's sins deserved. God took someone precious from him as a punishment for Abraham's sin and for your sin. God will never take someone or something precious from you as a punishment for your sin because he has already taken the someone who is most precious from himself as punishment for your sin and mine. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
the greatest possible price has been paid for your sin and for mine. And so if and when we suffer loss, it is never a punishment. Second truth, in, in our loss and grief and pain, God is always near and he always understands. God the Father has suffered loss and grief. Jesus is his son, his only son whom he loves. He is and has always been well pleased with Jesus. No one has ever loved or delighted in or treasured someone or something like the Father and the Son have loved and delighted in and treasured one another. We speak often of the grief and pain and sorrow that Christ experienced in his betrayal and death, but this passage is a glimpse for us that the Father grieved and felt pain and had sorrow. Moses, Moses tells us twice that on the way to the place of sacrifice, Abraham, the loving father, and Isaac, the innocent, devoted son, went both of them together up the mountain. On the road to Calvary, God, the loving father, and Jesus, the innocent, devoted son, went both of them together. Sickness and pain and death are a deep hurt to the one afflicted. Of course, but remember the hurt, the ache is matched by the loved ones who walk alongside in that dark path in the valley of the shadow of death. If you have held a loved one's hand while they died, you know this. If you think the story of Calvary is the story of a loving son appeasing the wrath of an angry father, if you think that the son suffered while the father stood aloof and unfeeling, you have not read the story carefully and you have not considered the pain one feels when their beloved dies. And so in your pain, in your grief, God is near and he understands. He is not detached and unsympathetic. And then third and finally, in our loss and grief and pain, the Lord will provide. On his way to the mountaintop experience of God's gracious provision of a ram as a substitute, Abraham walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Abraham was surely deeply troubled and deeply distressed by the road that God set him on in this episode. Yet look again at the perspective that Abraham maintains through the ordeal. He is in the midst of something painful and confusing, but both times that we hear Abraham speak, he speaks with hope. I already mentioned this. In verse 5, he says, I and the boy will go worship and we will come back. And then in verse eight, the, the Lord will provide a ram. The, the Lord will provide a substitute, a sacrifice. He demonstrates that he is looking through the painful reality of his circumstances to a final ending place where God will make all things right. Abraham doesn't know how it will play out, but he believes that God will see to it and the end result will show that his trust in God is warranted. And this trust in God's ultimate wisdom, goodness, and kindness enables Abraham to take one more step. 
to do the next thing that God has set in front of him, though it is deeply painful. So it is for us. You may now be in a place of deep pain, grief, and loss, a place you do not want to be. Or you may be looking at the road ahead with a sense of foreboding. I don't want to go down this path. It is scary. Will there be pain? Where? What will happen? How will I cope with the suffering that is surely to come? And if that is you, you can look to the same end result that Abraham saw. You can look through the dark valley, through the present painful circumstances, to the place of rest and peace, of healing and fullness. All is not well right now, and it hurts, and we do not want it. But God is near. God is trustworthy. God will meet me each step. He will bring me through this pain into a final place of quiet joy. All is not well, but it will not always be like this. And one day, all will be well. The cross guarantees that. The cross guarantees that the penalty for sin has been paid once for all. And the empty tomb guarantees that the end for those who trust in Christ is not death and pain, but life and joy. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. God, you so loved the world that you gave your only son. You did not spare your son, but gave him for us all. And because you've done that, how can we not believe that you'll graciously give us all things? How can we not believe that those who trust in Jesus will have eternal life? Help us to look to the mountain of the Lord where it has been provided and let that be enough for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.